This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. I'm Robert Polly. It's time for Talk of the Bay. Today on the show, believing you're right even when you're dead wrong. I'll talk to neuroscientist Robert Burton about our brain's often unwarranted sense of certainty. That's coming right up. Well, today's show is about certainty, which reminds me of these words from a certain ex-secretary of defense. There are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. Okay, chortle if you must. But give Rummy his due. He was articulating a crucial distinction we all make about a zillion times a day. Between the stuff we're really certain of, the stuff we can take to the bank, and then the things we're less sure of, things we may or may not know, and finally the stuff that we're really, really clueless about. I mean, for instance, you know you're hearing my voice right now, right? But you also know that you don't know what I'm wearing as I say this. No, you don't. To put it more neuroscientifically, the brain has ways of acquiring knowledge, that's what we call learning, and it has ways of assessing its knowledge, of separating what it knows from what it doesn't. But that raises a question. Can we trust our brains to judge themselves? I mean, can the chicken guard the chicken coop? Well, Robert Burton is a neuroscientist. He was for many years associate chief of neuroscience at UCSF Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco. And he says, uh, no, not really. That critical insight we all depend on, that sense of knowing what we know, is in fact the product of an all-too-human organ, our mushy brain, not some omniscient truth machine. And it can make us a lot surer of ourselves than we have any right to be. Robert Burton's latest book is On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not. He sat down with me recently to talk about it. At least I'm pretty sure he did. I mean, I have this tape to prove it. Robert Burton, welcome. Hi. Have you ever been on a jury? Yes. You have. Now, you strike me as someone who might be a prosecutor's nightmare. I've been on a jury for about 10 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) One question and I was off. What was the question? Do you think you can give me an honest opinion? (laughs) (laughs) Now, the reason I, I bring that up at the outset of the interview is that this book of yours is about what you call the feeling of knowing, the sense we have in ourselves of being sure of something, and how suspect and often fallible that feeling is. Correct. And uh, so you would strike me as someone who, um, when it comes to uh, judging evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, might not uh, be in a mood to convict. (laughs) I might be in a mood to convict, but I wouldn't be beyond a reasonable doubt. I might convict anyhow. Oh, really? (laughs) But I agree, it would be harder. Um, Well, let's talk about this this thing you call the feeling of knowing. What are you referring to? Almost everything that you think about has the knowledge portion which you've studied, and then it has an assessment of that knowledge, a feeling that that knowledge is correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's that thought is correct. Mm-hmm. So I know maybe that magnetism is this or F equals MA. Mm-hmm. I have no clue in my heart or my gut as to what F equals MA is at some higher level. So I don't know if it's right. I only know it's right by judging other people. But if I have an aha... That's the moment that converts intellectual knowledge to felt knowledge. I now have both the knowledge and the knowledge about the knowledge. I don't like to use words like metacognition, but it's Mm -hmm. really knowledge about knowledge. It's knowledge about knowledge. Um, And we rely on that. We say, 
I'm not sure about this, but I'm really sure about this. And that's why I'm going to go ahead and dive into this pool. I'm sure it's deep enough. It won't break my neck. Correct. I'm going to hit that accelerator because I know it makes the car go forward. Correct. Uh, I may apply the formula F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration, because I learned it in physics class, and I know it works. So what's wrong with that? I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, that's how we operate day to day. And with things that can be proven, that's fine. In other words, I can do F equals MA and calculate something. If it's dead wrong, somebody's going to tell me. Now, if I say 2 and 2 is 5, and I start to add up the apples, and somebody starts to laugh, I'll know I gave them an extra apple, Mm -hmm. right? So I will learn by experience that those kinds of things are wrong. Those things that are testable, then we can test the intellectual knowledge. But those are relatively few things in daily life. Most things that we think about, whether we should be in or out of Iraq, or who we should vote for president, or whether we should marry that woman, or whether this guy cheated us, aren't really those kinds of things that you can submit to empiric testing. Mm-hmm. So that they, so it, it, what is true about the simple things, two and two is four, mm-hmm. aren't so true about whether we should get in or out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet we can have that feeling that we're right, that we're sure. This is, this is absolutely something we know. Correct. Um, you say that this feeling or sensation of knowing is not a result of reasoned deliberation. We don't work it out, come to a conclusion, say, I know that, typically. Correct. It's like an instinct or an intuition or a gut feeling. It's something that happens. I think part of it is, if you think about cognition, there's the conscious portion, which is sort of the tip of the iceberg, and there's the vast majority of people estimate, and I don't know if this is right, 95-plus percent of what you think about occurs outside of consciousness. Um, when we drive, like I would drive here to your studio, I probably saw 10,000 things along the way. My brain was processing them all. But basically all I was looking for was your address because mm-hmm. I'm new here in town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the rest of it is lost to me on a conscious level, but unconsciously the brain filtered that out. Mm-hmm. Consciousness is sort of tunnel vision. That's very well said. That is true. So what it amounts to is that in the unconscious, there must be some calculation as to what we should bring into consciousness. Some things maybe I should know, like that lady's crossing the street, I'm going to hit her. Uh, that should be, you should be aware of it. So there has to be some filtering out of thoughts in general that occur in the unconscious according to some likelihood that they're right. Well, how do they bring it to your attention? How does the unconscious bring those thoughts to your attention? Mm-hmm. Well, one way would be to say, aha, mm-hmm. I got a hunch. I got mm-hmm. a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. I'll bet that's right. Mm-hmm. Some clue, and it's a calculation of probability you're more likely to be right. Mm-hmm. Now, that occurs outside of conscious awareness, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's not always right. You don't know until it reaches consciousness, and then you test it. But your book is, it has some wonderful examples of cases in which people are sure they're right, when in fact, they're about as wrong as you can possibly be. Right. Tell me about uh, a patient of yours, Mr. C. Well, that's actually these patients that I described in the book were the preamble to my working on this book in the sense that I originally wrote them as interesting cases that I thought might turn into some sort of a pilgrimage about neurology a la Oliver Sacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mr. C was a case in point because Mr. C was a man who had a very small stroke, very nice. I knew him personally an antique dealer in the city, and Mm -hmm. uh, he recovered within 12 hours. And the next day, he went home from the hospital, and he phoned me in an absolute panic because he had this fabulous long uh, refectory table that would seat 15 or 16 people. 
and he had little tiny French doors. You couldn't possibly get the table in or out of the room. And he said, someone's replaced my table with an imitation. And I said, why does it feel like an imitation? He says, when you run your hand along the wormwood, he said, these holes no longer feel familiar. Mm. He said, so I know this isn't real. Mm -hmm. Despite all, all logic, all reason. Right. So I said to him, do you think someone could have really taken this table out of that little, those little tiny doors without dismantling it? He says, no, it's impossible. Well, if it's impossible, why, how do you think it's uh, a, an imitation? He said, because I know real when I feel it. And I remember that phrase, and I recognized that the feeling of reality was actually neurological. Mm. And it was one of the first times that it dawned on me that the brain creates spontaneously certain sensations like familiar, real. The most um, solid, reliable, quote-unquote, sensations we have, that this is real, that this is happening now, that this absolutely is the case, you're saying, are produced by the brain, and they can go haywire. And uh, they occur outside of consciousness. In other words, they arise de novo, so to speak. Uh -huh. And uh, the thing that actually got me into neurology, I mentioned in the beginning of the book, was Wilder Penfield studies on the brain. And you can stimulate a conscious... You can do neurosurgery mm -hmm. on people that are conscious. You, the brain's insensitive to pain. Mm -hmm. You put a hole in the skull. Then you put an electrode in, and you can stimulate the brain. This is awake surgery. Correct. Yeah. And they do more and more of that now for yeah. a variety of things. But when he did it, he basically mapped the cerebral cortex, the motor and the sensory cortex, but he also mapped psychic phenomena. Now, what's interesting to me is... We should say that what he did is he, he would stick an electrode precisely into a spot in the brain of this awake patient and see what happened. Correct. See what they felt. See exactly. what they reported. And the interesting thing is when... So these people would be sitting there in a chair. It's fascinating to see. They got all this equipment around them, but they're quite conscious. And then you turn on electricity. These people have nothing on their mind. There's not, they're not thinking about anything. Maybe they're thinking mm -hmm. about the surgery, but they're... Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, that feels strange. Mm -hmm. That feels familiar. And you say, what feels familiar? Well, it's not something that feels familiar. The it would have quotation marks around it. Something feels familiar. It's in the same category as deja vu, which is the most pheno common phenomenon he uh, elicited. In other words, deja vu tells you something is familiar, mm -hmm. but you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or it would be deja vu anymore. You would know mm -hmm. that it was so attached to something. What really struck me was it didn't need any thought to have a feeling of real, unreal, but also of being right. Mm -hmm. was, and, and this goes back to the William James and the sort of... Uh, mystical phenomenon of mm -hmm. complete clarity. But the clarity occurs without any thought. That's what's really fascinating. So mm -hmm. I realized that that must be separate in mm. some way. Mm. Mm. You're referring to William James, the uh, 19th century psychologist, philosopher, uh, who wrote the varieties of religious experience. Correct. And that feeling of deep religious knowledge, deep spiritual knowledge that many people describe as very pleasant, actually. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we not only have a feeling of knowing, but we also have a feeling of needing to know and anxiety to know. We hate not knowing, you know, we as a species. Right. Are, are these two things linked? I think that we can only learn by categorization. I think it's one of the reasons so many Hollywood movies start off great and end up with terrible endings, because we can't stand ambiguity. At some fundamental level, uh, we can only learn by pigeonholing things. In other words, if everything we knew was sort of like this and sort of like that, we'd never learn. So we really want to 
boil it down to a category. You're a Republican, mm. you're a Democrat, mm. you're this, you're that. It's really hard to say, well, you know, he's partly the... Mm. So I think that there's enormous anxiety about not reaching a certain level of certainty about an idea that prompts certainty to be the sort of uh, circuit breaker. It the actually, circuit breaker. Yeah, in other words, if you're, if you're vacillating between two points of view and, and we, you really can't learn from that kind of behavior... Sooner or later, in order not to have sort of infinitely recursive thinking, in other words, that thought might be right, but how do I know the thought about that mm -hmm. thought's right? Mm -hmm. How would I know about the thought about that mm -hmm. thought is right? Endless it's, second guessing. Right. You yeah. then end up with a feeling, ah, ha, ha. And we, we know that from the uh, multiple choice test where basically if you answer the one that feels most familiar, you're more likely to be right. doesn't mean you're going to be right mm -hmm. because the brain has sorted it out into some category of that seems reasonable and attached to a feeling that it's reasonable as opposed to just a thought because we can't, thoughts aren't an endpoint in themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't, does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's continue to, to discuss this feeling of knowing, which is so central to your book. What have you learned, you neuroscientists, I should say, about this feeling? Is it localized in the brain? Can you guys produce that sensation by sticking an electrode in there and stimulating part of the brain? Do we know where this feeling comes from? There are two aspects of that. There's so-called tip-of-the-tongue sensation, which is, I think I remember your name, it's right on the tip right. of my tongue, that kind of thing. They and I know that I know it, right. though I can't actually say what it is I know. Right. <laughs> so recently, as of last week, they believe they've identified an area in the brain for that isolated phenomena. So it would be part of the language circuitry. Uh -huh. So that would be just for that name recognition. Okay. But for the more general sense of feeling of knowing, some of which isn't even language related, for example, you will hear um, a piece of music. It doesn't have to be about language. Mm -hmm. You won't, you'll still have that feeling. I know that, but it won't obviously be located in the same spot. So if I can infer that tip of the tongue for language is in language center, there must be others for music, this and that. And so I imagined a pretty widespread within the brain as opposed to one localized entity. Now, in addition to cases uh, like Mr. C, and by the way, I should say that the most startling thing about the uh, case of Mr. C is that you made a house call. You went to see if the desk, <laughs> you went to look at the desk that he said had been, <laughs> been substituted. Here you are, head of neurology at uh, UCSF Hospital in San Francisco. You made a house call? <laughs> well, curiosity, curiosity ruined my lunch hour. I can't say it wasn't for ulterior. I wanted to see what happened. Well, of course, he was a case of someone um, knowing they were right when, in fact, they were completely deluded. You have an interesting uh, uh, example of cases where we don't know that we know something, and we do know it. Correct. It's called blindsight. Right. And perhaps blindsight is the most well-studied example, even though it's very, very, very rare, where people, there, there are two paths that light can take in your brain. One is it'll go directly to your occipital cortex, and in the other is it will go to this some... Is the, uh, this is the area that processes visual information and produces the image we perceive. Correct. Yeah, And the second will go to the subcortical areas that re are primarily involved in reflex, reflexive activity, mm -hmm. turning your head towards a light or a threat or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And these do not go to the cortex primarily. And these are unconscious areas. Right. And so what they've shown in people who've had, usually it's a stroke, not always, but usually it's a stroke that has destroyed the occipital lobe 
so that they can no longer see consciously. They can then flash lights in various areas of the visual field. And people do far better than chance at recognizing where the light is. But they have no idea if they've seen the light. And they cannot tell you they've done better than chance alone. So they will deny they've done better than chance. They will deny they've seen the light. But in fact, their unconscious brain is learning. And they, they actually, apparently, recently has shown you, can, if you, under the right circumstances, can show this in normal people. But primarily, in the few cases that have been studied, it's very it's fascinating because it's knowledge without knowledge. They see the light, but they don't know they've seen it. Right. Because the, the presence of the light is being reported to a part of the brain to which they don't really have conscious access. Correct. Um, so this feeling of knowing can be wrong. Um, sometimes it doesn't kick in when you think it should kick in. Right. What good is it? Why do we have it? And I know we're in the realm of speculation here. So it took me a long time to <laughs> try and work through this book, as I think I told you before. And one of the questions is, why would it be there? Well, you can't learn without a reward. I, th I thought to myself, well, you have a reward for virtually everything you do. Eating relieves the sense of hunger, mm -hmm. drinking, sense of mm -hmm. thirst. What is the reward for a thought? Well, in a very immediate circumstance, the reward for a thought is, Maybe you escaped a rushing uh, lion or something. Maybe you got out of harm's way. So, but the feedback would have to be, aha, that mm -hmm. worked. Mm -hmm. And it would be the only way you can learn. Even if you take kids in the very beginning, if you watch Big Bird or mm. Sesame Street or whatever it is, in the beginning, kids are rewarded for learning the simplest things of language. They have to have it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. You would sit there... And your brain would have no function, really, in that sense. Right. So it's, it, reward systems are, are what keep us going. And they're what keep us going for the, those things that can be satisfied immediately. For example, I, find, I look for your address. I see the sign. It says radio station. That's an immediate reward. But the problem is that you also have to have rewards for thoughts that take a long time, months or years mm -hmm. or a lifetime. Mm -hmm. The guys who pursue original scientific things. They have to have a sense that they're on the right track. They're oftentimes going to be wrong. So they have to have a reward that feels as though they're on the right track, that feels exactly the same as if they were correct, or they wouldn't proceed onward. So that the, that feeling has to have two functions. One is for learning and the other is for motivation, but they're paradoxical. So a little tingle of satisfaction when we think we've learned something new. Right. I know this. Right. It feels good. Right. Yeah. And I don't know this, conversely, sometimes feels pretty bad. Right. Um, all of this would be unnecessary, it seems to me. You wouldn't need rewards if we were just a computer, right? Well, a computer, program it to do certain things, even, even a very smart computer that can learn and, and adaptively uh, change its approach through a system of, of feedback doesn't need to feel good about it. You know, I'm not sure that's correct. Really? I'm not sure that's correct <laughs> because if you're talking about the artificial intelligence type computers that now play poker and chess, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. they don't may not feel that they're right, mm -hmm. but they have to have positive feedback. Mm -hmm, indeed. But I'm thinking that you can create in their artificial intelligence and, and, and um, you know, computational theory has worked out how to you know, how to use feedback loops to reinforce certain patterns and to, um, to inhibit 
you know, unproductive patterns inside of computers. But I haven't yet run into anybody who thinks these computers are feeling good about it. I would agree. I will tell you, however, <laughs> just for devil's advocacy, which I don't believe, there's a lady at MIT, Rosalind Pickard, who is working on something called the affective computer. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know anything about computers. Mm -hmm. I know less about artificial mm -hmm. intelligence and even less about her. Mm -hmm. So I put all those three together. I know nothing about it, but I have communicated with her, mm -hmm. and she sent me a work. And it's, it is interesting that she believes that computers might be able to actually respond appropriately to affective inputs now. What's an affective input In other words, for like a if computer? you say good computer, and sure. you, you pat it on the monitor. Sure. I mean, but, you know, it's programmed to do something in response to that positive reinforcement, just the way it's, it's designed to turn on when I push the power switch. Well, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I just want to let, so when you asked the question, I just wanted to, 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 to but, put that out there. But, but I want to press you on this because you um, really have a, a, a book that's one part um, neuroscience, one part philosophy, uh, I'd say. I mean, you go right. farther than just the pure science. Right. And, and you raise a number of questions that have belonged in the category, I think, of epistemology, you know, traditionally, that part of philosophy that deals with how we know what we know. Right. And these days, um, we're hearing a lot about emotions as, a, as an important part of the thought process from neuroscientists, right. you know, like Antonio Damasio right. and others. It's no longer all about cold logic and reason. It's also about feelings. I want to know what a feeling is uh, that's different from a kind of reasoning process. Is it a reason by a different name? It took a long time with this book to try and come to grips with the language. In other words, I didn't know whether to call this the feeling of knowing, whether it's a sensation, an emotion. Same, by the same token, one of the thoughts that occurred to me, is reason really simply logic? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I put in there a section just totally speculatively about how people with different genetic predispositions might create their thoughts. Now, I, I mentioned there about the knockout rats. Mm -hmm. Imagine that you have a gene that, if knocked out, will allow people to not store fearful memories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this has uh, been done with rats. Right. So you'll have two groups of rats, normal rats that, in a new environment, fearfully cautious about exploring their environment. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have another group of rats who, because they've knocked out a single gene, mm -hmm. seem to be fearless. Right. They're evil knievels of the rat world. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. And this is because they can't synthesize a certain protein. Correct. A single protein. seems to be central in the fear response. Right. And what amounts to is, for whatever reason, they don't lay down fear. So they don't remember past fearful behavior. Mm -hmm. Now imagine a rat being elevated to a politician, which uh, is not a hard It doesn't take much imagination, right. no. Okay. Now, you, so you have two politicians, one of whom, when a situation arises, it triggers old fears. But the fears are at the origin of the thought. In other words, they are part of how the thought begins. In the other case, he has no fearful memories. His thought will appear somewhere else. For example, I've tried this on people with the oil spill in Alaska. As soon as someone says, what do you think about the oil spill in Alaska? Before you have a chance to think about it, you get a mental image. Mm -hmm. I just did, of a big black oil slick spreading over the water there, uh, coming out of the Exxon Valdez. Correct. And I see a bird with oil all over its uh, face. Yeah, okay. yeah. That I didn't will that image consciously 
into awareness. Mm -mm. I didn't go, what's my first thought about it? Mm -hmm. It occurred mm -hmm. to me. Now, that's mm -hmm. unconscious cognition. But that starts as the reference point for my thinking about an oil spill. Now, you take someone else who doesn't have that gene, they may see, just equally correctly, if you want to use the word correct, the long gas lines they had in the 70s. Because that may be what occurs to him. Now, that'll start a line of reasoning, and he'll start to try and support his... So when people talk about reason as being separate from emotion, the emotion that underlay these was a fear response. But the fear is actually embedded not so much in you feeling fearful. When, when mm -hmm. we mentioned the, mm -hmm. the, the Valdez, you didn't become fearful. Mm -hmm. You experienced probably no emotional response on that sort. But your brain actually used that fear response to generate the initial picture of how you would approach the problem of thinking about uh, exploration for oil. So I'm not sure that, I, I, in the past I used to think, oh yeah, there's reason over here and there's emotion over here. But if motion, if, if emotional propensities inform how your thoughts arise, then reason isn't an isolated phenomenon anymore. Now, now, in the example you just gave, you're saying that, that emotion may be involved in producing that mental image that I use as shorthand for the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Correct. But really, if someone asked me to then sit down and do some mathematical calculations, were I capable of such, you know, about the size of the spill, about the damage it did to wildlife, I would think I could put that fear reaction or that distaste, you know, aside and, and just be purely, you know, objective and rational. Are you saying that's not possible? You can never get the emotional bias out of any, out of any calculation? I would never say never. <laughs> but I, in other words, just in thinking about the Valdez, there's an infinitude of possible calculations. You could calculate area, depth. You could calculate the coves and nooks. I mean, really, mm -hmm. just the choice of how you'd go about measuring mm -hmm. the extent or the damage. Does it, if, do you call damage to birds equivalent to damage to termites? I, I don't mean that's a joke. You would choose evidence based upon this initial feeling. Sometimes, yeah. Other times I might apply standard formulae that, you know, that uh, Exxon told me to apply. <laughs> that's true, too. So what it amounts to is I can't answer that you could. You know, what you're really asking is can you be objective? Given yeah, yeah, yeah. And the answer is you can try really hard. Yeah. Whether or not you can eliminate those is really... Is, is, it's not possible to know yeah. because you only know your line of reasoning. You can't know how it originated. So from the point of point A where your line of reasoning originates, it may be entirely internally coherent and the conclusion logical. But, but surely if, um, if you know, I told you to calculate the amount of money you have in your various bank accounts right now, whether or not you're afraid of insolvency, you could come up with a pretty reliable number. Correct. So, yeah? yes, there are certainly things that you can calculate <laughs> with certainty in that sense, yes. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, after thinking about it quite a bit and writing about it, how would you characterize the distinction between emotions and um, calculation? Reason. 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 Yeah. My suspicion is that cognition probably occurs in ways that we haven't really considered. By that I mean you have unconscious cognition that is a potpourri or a mixture or, or a mixing together of a variety of mental phenomena that may not have as 
lovely borders mm-hmm. as we like to think mm-hmm. of them. In other words, we like to think of emotion as being mm-hmm. this and reason as being mm-hmm. that. And there's probably overflow between the two in much the same way as you, I mean, I talk about synesthesia and these. Yes. There may, it may be that the, at the edges, there's over, you know, and yet at the, that there's overflow and yet at the extremes, there's pure reason and pure emotion. Well, you um, you touch now on a question um, that occurred to me while reading your book, which is full of big questions, which is that um, in your field, neuroscience, when looking for a mental uh, entity of some kind, you know, maybe you're looking for a so-called emotion, the origin of the fear response, or maybe you're looking for a certain faculty, the ability to um, uh, the ability to add. You're always starting with a definition. Usually one that's very old, very old. We all, we've, you know, we humans have had an idea of what fear is or what love is or affection or dishonesty, all those things. We've had those ideas for for millennia. um, And neuroscientists are are using these hand-me-down concepts and they're going and looking for them, you know, using a variety of tools like the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging that's so popular now. Is that a good way to go about it? Well, you have folk psychology in a way. By that I mean, if I talk to you about beliefs... In some way, if I say I believe something, you and I know that I feel strongly about it. That's the value of the word belief. If I want to study the word belief, yeah. golly, it could be a thousand things. Yes. Um, and we have books, by the way, that are out now that saying we should study belief. Right. And one of my friends who actually was a philosopher at, uh, at Oxford said to me, the problem is that neurologists have not been trained in philosophy. Mm. But on the other hand, philosophers have a sort of stronghold on the way we think about language because the neurologists haven't stepped up to the plate and really said, wait a minute. So, for example, you take a discussion like free will. That's something that's 2,500 years old. But you'll read every day about a new study which purports to say there is or isn't free will because, in fact, we haven't really defined what that means. Well, maybe the biggest example of all is uh, the one that applies to the the $64,000 question, what is consciousness? I mean, when people ask that question, they usually mean we already know what consciousness is. We're just going to find out how it's produced in the brain. But do we know what it is that we're looking for? I think if I I even stopped using the word consciousness when I can. I uh-huh. just use the word awareness. Uh-huh. Oh well, because what all awareness tells you is that you know you know that some you, you're aware of it in your mind. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's bothersome to me is there's a you go to bed at night. You ask yourself, I can't remember Joe Blow's name. I go to bed and I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. You wake up in the morning and there it is, right? Yeah. Okay. Now you had will. You had intention to think of the guy's name. You did everything but bring it into consciousness voluntarily. So now your unconscious was aware of it because it came up with the answer during your sleep, but you were asleep. So you you were actually aware of it the way the man with blindsight is aware of the knowledge. And then at some point, you, another portion of you becomes aware of it. So the whole idea of consciousness really depends upon what you mean by you. In other words, your unconscious knew the answer at midnight, and the conscious knew it at 8 in the morning, right? Yeah. Well, they're both you. So part of you was conscious of his name, but you weren't. So we, we artificially divide up the self into consciousness and unconsciousness. You think it's artificial? 
Because earlier in this... Arbitrarily. Well, in this conversation and also in your book, you make the point that the vast majority of our thoughts are unconscious. Correct. Only a few percolate up. Right. Um, So you're making that distinction between conscious and unconscious. Right. Conscious is what... Well, conscious is, in a way, it's something that I could tell you about. Yeah, and it really, instead of it being an all or nothing, it's more like field of vision. Mm-hmm. At the very f- center of vision, you have very acute vision, mm-hmm. and then it fades off into the periphery where you see less and less and less, mm-hmm. and you're vaguely aware of what's way out in the mm-hmm. periphery of your visual field, and mm-hmm. you're nothing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what I meant by that, is that there's a, an apex of consciousness fading off into non-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you definitely seem to, to advance an idea in your book that consciousness has a function. I mean, there's certain mechanisms at play in conscious thought that have to be there because of consciousness. Right. There's other mechanisms that play in unconscious thought. And unconscious thought, I'm going to throw this out. You correct okay. me if I'm wrong. You say that there's a great deal of processing happening down there that is deciding in, in, in effect by committee whether uh, you know, certain thoughts, certain ideas are worth presenting to the conscious self. Correct. You know, here's something really important. I want to catch your attention. The rest of this stuff I'll handle on my own in the back room, and I won't ever tell you about it. You know, like a good accountant, you know, comes out every once in a while and tells you that, uh, oh, boy, the books aren't balancing. Right. You know? So what's the function of consciousness? Why couldn't we do all this stuff unconsciously as we suppose that computers and even, you know, lower forms of life, you know, we like to think that they don't have to think about things very much. They just do it. Now, there's something I definitely do not have an answer for. <laughs> <laughs> is the function of consciousness. Um, but you believe the feeling of knowing is an important, you know, really exists in the sphere of consciousness. Correct. It's that reward system for right. that little conscious guy who says, oh, I feel good. I just learned something or I, I just, you know, acquired some knowledge. Yeah, it we, wouldn't be necessary for the unconscious. It doesn't have to that's feel. Correct. You know. That is, well, the unconscious makes a calculation. A good example, supposing I walked in here today and I saw you at a distance and I saw that you had a beard and you were slender and, and about the height of Abe Lincoln. <laughs> My brain will make a calculation based upon, no, that's not Abe Lincoln. Maybe Abe Lincoln likely be, oh, it is Abe Lincoln. That's all done at an unconscious level. So recognition just out there in the is, is purely unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely necessary. So those calculations about rightness yeah. occur unconsciously. It's the feeling that that's triggered by that calculation that only occurs in the conscious. Yes, yes. Right. Well, you've already said you don't have an answer for it, but I'm I'm going to go away scratching my head about why we even need that conscious part of our mental faculties. If I had a really well-thought-out answer, I'd give it to you. <laughs> and I would, just as an aside... You're probably aware of it, but just unconscious. Well, as, as an aside, <laughs> I wrote a piece for Salon about six months ago. Salon.com, yeah. In which a lady was in a persistent vegetative state. And then they played her name into headphones. And she could hear the, the areas in the fMRI lit up exactly the same as they would in a normal person. This is a fairly recently reported... Right. Uh, yeah, event. And the question was, was she conscious? Yeah. And my argument was that all of these processes could occur unconsciously and don't tell you anything about the state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Other people argued, including the fellow who wrote the article from uh, Cambridge, that she was, in fact, conscious. 
So when, but this little portion of our conversation started with what is consciousness? And I think the problem is these, these definitions aren't so much outdated as because we use them so differently that I'm reluctant to draw some conclusion mm -hmm. that, uh, on them, I think. Our discussion here of, of the unconscious versus the conscious um, puts me in mind of um, some, some popular books that have come out in the last few years about the, um, the virtues of sort of unconscious reasoning, right. especially uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. In fact, I interviewed him on this show a couple of years ago about that book. But his contention in the book is that there are many kinds of calculations and decisions that we make without having to think, you know, uh, deliberately about them that are done quite well, quite quickly by our unconscious, which he calls blink. You know, he calls right. the phenomenon right. of blinking. Right. Uh, you take issue with some of his ideas? Correct. Yeah? Very strongly. Tell me about it. Well, the, the first example he uses in his book is about the Egyptian statue. Um, A Greek statue. Greek statue, right. Yeah. Greek statue at, at the Getty Museum mm -hmm. in which they bought it and paid a fortune. Indeed. And somebody came up and said, that's, that's a fake. Yeah, first a bunch of scholars had examined it and consciously evaluated it and appraised it, you know, and, and said it was the real thing. And then some guy who's a real expert came in and without even, you know, thinking twice said it's a fake. But now, first of all, you have to understand how he came up with that thought. He is an expert. So expertise, which starts off consciously, going to grad school, getting your degrees, ends up being embedded in the unconscious mm -hmm. as shortcuts. This is mm -hmm. why the really great physicians, whatever, poets, they've, they've taken stuff from the conscious, made it part of their unconscious. Yes. So he really was assessing this based on expertise, made a calculation in his mind which gave him the feeling that it's wrong, that this isn't... And then the acid test is to test the object. Now, if you noticed in Gladwell's book on that, he says, this is either a real statue or it's a forgery, mm -hmm. but there's no conclusion because mm -hmm. they can't tell. Mm -hmm. So even though he uses that as his, his, his pivotal argument, they still don't know. Mm. So the, to me, the thing about gut feelings or hunches that you're right, you have to decide whether this is a testable hypothesis. In other words, if whether we should or should not go to the mountains next week on vacation isn't testable. It's an opinion. Yeah. Whether or not uh, E equals MC squared is testable. Whether dark matter exists is testable. So I think that when he makes a, a, a categorical statement that you can trust this, you're doing an enormous disservice. You're lying for quackery. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people say, I have a gut feeling that you have this, that, or the other. You should take this, mm. or that drug works. Mm. Um, I think it's been one of the big disservices in recent pop psychology. Mm. Mm. Now, I think every field that approaches the big questions, whether it be social science, the humanities, or the sciences, um, tries to stake a claim to being prior to all the other disciplines. You know, hey, if you really want to understand consciousness, start with philosophy. Someone else might say, no, if you really want to understand consciousness, start with psychology. And a critical theorist in a literature department that might say, if you really want to understand consciousness, you should really look at Western civilization and its whole idea of this construct called consciousness, which is in fact a playing out of certain, you know, male-dominated power structures and things like that. You, not surprisingly, stake a claim to these questions in the name of neuroscience. That, um, 
basic questions about certainty and uncertainty, what some people would have called metaphysical questions, really do belong in the sphere of neuroscience. That if we figure out what the brain does, the brain's um, tendencies, it's the kinds of mistakes it makes, we can say something about certainty at the end of all that. And you do, and we'll get to that in just a second. Now, what makes you feel that, that neuroscience is the right approach? It is a right approach, <laughs> not the right approach. You sure you're a scientist and not a philosopher? Well, I've written several novels, and I approach those from the point of view that I'd like to find some greater truth or something that resonates with me. Now, I believe that is as much a way of learning about life as listening to Beethoven late string quartets or, or, or Jimi Hendrix. They're different ways of knowing. Um, I don't think philosophy can approach those that are unrelated to thought, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is about thought. Mm -hmm. um, but thought, if you start to dissect it out, is got all its subcategories, and those are going to be in the realm of neuroscience for what is demonstrable and those which will never be demonstrable. For example, there's a whole new burgeoning field of what we call neurophenomenology, which partly this book is. I described you a feeling I have. Mm -hmm. we can, you're not going to be able to study that. You will never be able to study that. Mm. In fact, uh, to quote you, you say, it is an extraordinary proposition to believe that an intellectual understanding of physical properties can reveal subjective mental truths. Correct. Though there are people out there trying to do just that. Correct. Yes. And so when you see a lot of these studies now on morality, let's say, done with a functional MRI, they just make me kind of laugh because they're really looking at uh, the waves on the water and trying to figure out the, the, the deep composition of the earth. I mean, they're mm. very superficial. Or, or, you know, to study the uh, chemical composition of the surface of a tennis court in order to figure out who will win Wimbledon, you know, or, Correct. Or, or, or how the rules, you know, are played. And we, we, I mean, there isn't a day that goes by in the New York Times that you don't read about oxytocin and love. Or the, I mean, right. the, the, you, that's very simplistic. On the other hand, I think philosophy has to address the fact that many of the big questions might be generated by the brain in ways, for example, I mentioned the book about the Big Bang Theory. And we, in the mind's eye, we have borders. We can't see anything except by contrast with its surrounding background. Mm -hmm. So when, no matter how you talk about the universe... You, if you think about a singularity, you see it against some background of something. Singularity being this uh, this tiny point that the the universe, uh, according to the Big Bang theory, began as and expanded out to right. its present size. But the only way we can see that in the mind's eye against, is against some grayness or darkness or yeah. whatever it is. We say so. Then we ask the question, "What is that?" So I'm trying to think, what if I came from Mars and had a silicon brain or some, you know. Would I still ask the same question? So without giving anything away, one of the thoughts I'm having about what I might like to do next is to pursue some of these big questions from the point of view, what if you had a different way of thinking? What if you had a different kind of brain? In other words, if you read Stephen Hawking's, all of his theories on cosmology, he says straight out, I'm trying to address the border, no border problem because one will imply God and the other doesn't have to. And I'm thinking, well, the border problem comes out of the way the visual cortex is structured. Mm. For, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe it corresponds to what's out there, and maybe it doesn't. Well, um, physicists, I mean, those who work w at the real um, 
the real bleeding edge of physics, whether it be down at the level of, of say, quantum phenomena or at the, uh, the macroscopic level of, say, relativity, say that, hey, our good old-fashioned brains, the intuitive ways we, we tend to approach problems, are not adequate to these problems. You know, in, in quantum physics, we cannot, we'll never be able to grasp in a normal way uh, the idea that uh, a particle can be in two places simultaneously or that there may be more than three spatial dimensions. We just can't get our heads around that, Correct. right? So um, physicists say, just look at the math. You know, the calculations work out. They, they're predictive. They're accurate. We can, we can tell you exactly how these things are going to happen, and when, when, it, when the theory works, it works. So who cares what the, the old, you know, fairly um, handicapped human brain uh, in, in its sort of intuitive way, you know, can or can't do when you've got something bigger called physics? Well, I confess to complete ignorance in math, but I subscribe to New Scientist magazine. And every week, they have one guy challenging another guy's math. And it's as though I've always thought that math was absolute. Now I realize math depends upon your starting point. And so you read one day string theory is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and the next thing is moldy bread. I mean, it really is. And if you read these about dark matter, dark energy, and I'm going, how would we know... If those assumptions, even though they're mathematical, start from a basically correct point, mm -hmm. that's really the question. Mm -hmm. And we assume they do because mathematicians have have given us that thought. But if you talk to mathematicians, they will tell you that this isn't so either, that math is also a... I mean, there are a lot of things that aren't solvable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, Gödel certainly uh, proved to some extent that within certain mathematical systems, it's impossible to absolutely prove every single proposition in the system. And what he said was, which is really interesting, is he referred to the basis of mathematics as mathematical intuition, and that some things are true but not provable. Exactly. Well, that is no different than Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, but it might, he might be right. <laughs> I don't mean to sound that way, but... Well, where all of this, this, um, this pondering and writing leads you uh, by the end of your book is a statement that we really can't be certain. I mean, we can approach certainty, we can approximate certainty. Even the most rigorous sciences can never say this is unequivocally, absolutely, without a doubt, incontrovertibly true. Correct. Again, you sound like a philosopher to me. But uh, I want to know uh, what in neuroscience tells us that. Well, if you, if you take, without going into great detail in this program, if you take how thoughts arise, and even the biologic determination of a thought, how some people, uh, for example, will, who with synesthesia, their thoughts will be colored. Mm -hmm. They will be different than mm -hmm. other people's. Mm -hmm. And if each person's line of reasoning is idiosyncratic, but correct from the point of its inception to the end, it will be correct for him. Mm-hmm but not necessarily correct for the next guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he might speak with certainty, and given his particular reference point, it might be certain. Mm -hmm. Well, let me give you, um, let me just throw out uh, an answer to this very same question that was uh, given to me by the philosopher Daniel Dennett. His last book was about um, religious belief, right. and he's a committed atheist and believes that uh, religious belief is flawed, but uh, he says it can be studied using you know, biology and studied evolutionarily, and we can look at how maybe religious impulses evolved and why we're prone to them. And um, 
in answer to the, you know, right back at you question of, well, what about science? Didn't it evolve and aren't we prone to thinking that way? He said, yes, but science has has created a structure of empirical confirmation that uh, involves creating a kind of edifice of knowledge and testing hypotheses against um, against evidence that is bigger than any particularly flawed human brain. And in this sort of collective process, we really can get to truths. We can get beyond that poor, fallible, single human brain. You, you know, I have that little gorilla example in my book. <laughs> Have you seen that Tell us videotape? It. But basically, oh yes, you can go to YouTube and see this. Right, describe it for us. But basically, I was at a, at a conference in UC Berkeley with a bunch of neuropsychologists and neurologists, and they're told to watch this video. And on this video, there are three guys in white uniforms and three people in black uniforms, and they say count the number of times the black team bounces the ball. Right, I think that's correct. And you count for 30 seconds, and I got 10, and my wife got 11. And, I, of course, I thought I was wrong anyhow. But It's very busy, though. The ball is being bounced around numerous past, people right. very fast, and paying attention and counting uh, is about all you can do. Right. Yeah. And then they afterwards, the guy said, "Have uh, who gave the lecture, says, Have you, did you see anything else unusual about the video? And in the group I was in, everybody said no. Now, I understand it's 50-50 in other groups, but it depends on the group. They said no, and then they ran the video again. In the middle, there was a guy in a big gorilla outfit came on the, uh, right in the front of everybody. He was standing there beating his chest. He was there for like five or eight seconds, and not one of us in the audience saw it. So when Dennett talks about consensus opinion, yeah. consensus arises out of a point of view. There isn't such a thing as an omniscient point of view for census. Nor, consensus. nor a rigorous enough um, sort of system that is independent of any particular mind that can be used. Correct. And that is where science I mean, goes. I at. could come up with a system that would find that gorilla, even if I can't see him. Yes, you could. Now try and convince me it was there, but if I only saw the video <laughs> once. So the point is you might actually have a system, but try and convince your fellow scientists who only saw that video once. They'd yeah. say, no, I didn't see a gorilla. Uh -huh. And that's part of the problem. Um, w one of the interesting things, coming from a scientist like yourself, that uh, you not only cast a certain amount of doubt on scientific certainty, but you also question the attempts by some scientists and, and some rationalists to completely dismiss or dispel religion. Dan Dennett is but one of several of the so-called new atheists. There's right. also uh, Sam Harris, the evolutionist Richard Dawkins, there's Christopher Hitchens. Correct. There's quite a quite a trend this right. way. Yeah. Um, what's your What's your beef with them? Twofold. I think that we all have irrational beliefs. So it, let's assume they were 100 percent correct. I would not want Richard Dawkins at my bedside if I was dying. I want someone who might give me a sense of hope, even if it was irrational. Even if it's an opiate. So we have the problem of if human beings are essentially irrational by nature and a lot of the things that we put our stock in that give us pleasure and give us meaning may be meaningless to somebody else to disregard that other person's sense of purpose and meaning just because it's irrational is really anti-humanistic at okay. its core. It doesn't feel good. It disappoints some people. But come on, it's true. It's true. So and, it, and and strong people like Richard Dawkins have learned to um, learn to enjoy the cold hard truth. 
you know, over and above the, the, uh, the comforting falsehoods. You, you run the problems. There's no question that science has created great thought, which is sometimes nearly completely correct. In other words, I think it'd be hard-pressed for me to say that evolution isn't 99.9999% correct. So in thinking about evolution, Dawkins is right that evolution is, a, is a, at least a provisional fact. Until and I mean, there's a, some remote possibility to be a new theory. Well, in, in the way that Newton's laws were, were provisionally true and true in some respect, but they were uh, also revised uh, by Einsteinian relativity. Right. Yeah. But, but the purpose of, of only a small percentage of people get pleasure out of science. Uh. I mean, in the very big picture. I find science fascinating. I don't get any personal sense of, of this is what life is about. If I listen to uh, Yo-Yo Ma playing, I might get more sense of purpose. It's irrational. Mm-hmm. But it's who I am, and it's who people are. People, mm-hmm. Everybody has a different set of parameters for what gives them a real sense of being alive. Mm-hmm. So what you really come across is, is the other person's irrationality harming you? If it is, such as driving, flying into the World Trade Center, okay, that's horrible. Or burning witches or something. Right. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you are quietly religious and it gives you a sense of pleasure and you do great deeds and so on, I think it's wrong to criticize the person. You can say that's not reasonable for me. But if that religious person brings the game into your court by saying, not only do I worship the Lord, but I believe your idea of evolution right. is false. That's right. Then it's time to hit back, I think uh, Richard Dawkins and others would say. And, and I think what it amounts to is if... One of the reasons I think I wrote this in my gut, though I don't know that this is correct, is... <laughs> you don't have the feeling of knowing. Right, <laughs> is that I, I have a feeling that if scientists said I'm 99.999% likely this is correct, but I can't be certain... And we developed that as the default position for thought in general, then fundamentalists would be forced to say, even though I think the world was created in six days and the earth and was 6,000 years old, whatever, that kind of thing. But there's one in a billion chance I'm wrong. Oh, you then think you they're going to play have, that game? Well, so, so <laughs> what you're really left with is we've never tried it. Uh-huh. None, of the other, none of the other tacks we've used have ever worked. Uh-huh. It might be worth a try. If it doesn't work, it's no worse than screaming and yelling, saying you're a fool and calling you an idiot. So you're, you're urging a little more humility in science, uh, a little less certitude. Right, and I think as the science becomes more and more complex and none of us have the information to really understand the total gamut of science, it's hard for someone to understand one area of neurology. People will go towards that which leads them away from ambiguity. Mm. Now, um, just to underline the the claim that you make in this book that some might perceive as radical, uh, to quote you, you say, certainty is not a biologically justifiable state of mind. Correct. Not biologically justifiable. Right. There's just not enough in biology uh, that could make a brain really, really sure. (laughs) And I don't think you'd ever, if you don't know the starting point of your assumptions, because you can't have introspection all the way down to your genome, you can only know that, as Darwin said, people don't collect rocks at random. They collect them for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And virtually everything that we do in life is sorting out evidence or selecting out evidence that will support 
feelings we have about our thoughts. If we can't get all the way down to square one of the thoughts, we have to assume that there's a possibility they're wrong. We all have an agenda. Correct. Yeah. And it may not be an agenda that's motivational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It may be something that is the way we think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, a scientist would say the agenda, sure, I have an agenda. My agenda is to perfect this body of knowledge to the point where it describes and predicts phenomena out there in the, the real world. And I agree with that principle. In other words, that's the way they should work. And I, I like that idea. But it's may, if it's 99% correct, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create cures for cancer and heart disease and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's perfect, though. Mm. doesn't mean it's certain. I mean, and I recognize that this may sound like splitting hairs, but I think it's when you step back that one step from certainty that you allow for other opinions. I mean, most people say that, you know, the old adage about science advances at the death of the old scientist. I mean, you don't have to wait 50 years because people keep saying I'm right. They could just say, huh, that's interesting. Why don't I think about that? Mm-hmm. Now, you're obviously uh, someone who um, has a philosophical turn of mind, I think, maybe all those novels you've written. Maybe. But um, is it possible to abandon absolute certainty and yet be certain about a claim that we should rephrase all these statements in terms of probability? Isn't there embedded in that claim an idea of certainty about probability? Correct. (laughs) What I've come to understand from all this is that paradox is the natural state of mind. Ah, now we get into Zen, huh? But so, but, but, <laughs> but so all of these statements I've made in this book, at the end you could say, how can he be certain about that? Mm-hmm. And I recognize that. It's like an Escher drawing. Mm-hmm. But that's the best we can do. So if we can accept that, I, so when I, I think I said in this book as many times as I could, and then the publisher redlined as many as possible about, I speculate that or I suspect that. People don't want to hear people say in writing, it's possible that. They mm-hmm. want to hear saying, this is. So mm-hmm. that is, when, when you write a book, you have to keep in mind that the language is also the language of the publishing industry. Now, how have your, your, your colleagues in science, people you've uh, worked with for so many years, how are they receiving this? Are you regarded as a bit of, a, a bit of a, an apostate for saying these things? Actually, I've, it's been surprisingly positive. The silence is from the people who don't agree, but it hasn't been in the form of a formal criticism, which I think is really interesting, because usually they'll f- I was really concerned that people would find tremendous fault with individual lines of reasoning or my own arguments. And, you know, I'd, some of the brightest and some, uh, reviews have been fabulous in the places where you'd like them to be. And the silence has been from those people that maybe don't like it, but haven't articulated a good counterargument. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, the day is still young. Yes, it certainly is. <laughs> well, Robert Burton, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks. It has been a real pleasure. Robert Burton is former chief of neurology and associate chief of the Department of Neurosciences at UC San Francisco Mount Zion Hospital. His latest book is On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not. For KUSP, I'm Robert Polly.